Well, I get one last chance to try to encourage the men to uh, participate in our upcoming men's retreat uh, this coming weekend. A good way to talk about it, I know we've been talking about uh, the fact that we're going to work through the book of Colossians, and in fact, if you know me as an expository preacher, that might seem extremely ambitious for me to get through in in basically a Friday night and a Saturday morning. But we're really going to talk about how to be holy without being a legalist. And that's a term that, that all of us need to understand how holiness is supposed to work in our lives. So I'd encourage you to sign up before you leave today. I think today is the last time to be able to sign up so that we can get our accounts uh, um, caught up. So if you would, please join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts. Lord, we come to you knowing that without your intervention, without your sovereign grace, we would be left in our sin. But Lord, we thank you that you interceded by sending your son Jesus to enter into this world, to live a perfect life, to bear the sacrifice that we could not bear. And that in the process of it, Lord, you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you, for us to learn to live, to love the things that you love, and to love you with our whole hearts and minds. And so, Lord, we pray that as we work ourselves through this journey that our brother Abraham has made in his life, that, Lord, you would use that to teach us about you so that you might be glorified. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Please, if you will, turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. Again, this is on page 9 of your pew Bible. Last week, we began our study of the life of Abram, also known as Abraham. And as emphasized then, and I'm going to keep harping on it throughout the rest of the book, that while Abraham is the central character we're focusing upon, he is not the hero. God is the hero. We always need to question and see Abram in light of his God, Yahweh. And last week in chapter 12, we had three major themes revealed in that passage. First was God's sovereign choice of Abram. There was nothing desirable about Abram that made him different from anyone else. Yet God has chosen this man to be the founder of a new nation that will represent him and his holiness on the earth. In fact, I'm fond of saying that Abraham is the seed of the church that will eventually become the bride of Christ as his covenant people. That will be the final outcome of God calling a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Second, we saw the themes of seed and land, or we might also say offspring and territory. God promised to give Abram a land, a place for his descendants, which entails that Abram will have offspring to give such land. Those two themes of seed and territory will feature throughout the rest of the book. God's going to deal first with the land, and later in Abram's life, we'll see a son emerge in Isaac. And third, we saw a testing period in Abram's life. A famine came to the land of Canaan, and rather than trust God's promise of provision and protection, Abram and Sarai flee to Egypt where they know there is food. And they deceive Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, concerning their relationship, which would jeopardize the promise that Abram would produce an era through Sarai. So we see that God intervenes with a plague upon Pharaoh's household, and Abram and Sarai are sent out of Egypt with immense gifts that Pharaoh has given them. Thus, Abram's unfaithfulness 
it's demonstrated in contrast to his God's faithfulness to him. As we've said frequently, what Yahweh wants, Yahweh gets. And this couple are back on track for God's sovereign plan. Now, as we enter into chapter 13, we'll see three sections that we're going to look at here. First, we have Abram and Sarah are relocating back to the promised land. And then we're going to see that there's going to be a conflict with Abram's nephew, Lot, and we'll see how they settle their differences. And in the third section, God will provide new information regarding his covenant with Abram. This is not a change from what God promised and stated earlier. It's just specifying what the Lord intended with his original promise. And then I want to conclude the sermon with the big idea of this story. It's not typically what I hear when this story is taught. And that's because most people focus on Abram rather than focusing on what God is doing. So verse 1 of this chapter concludes the events in Egypt with Abram and Sarai relocating to Canaan. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. This is the first time that Lot is mentioned since chapter 12, verse 5. We're not told his part in the scheme of fooling Pharaoh, but he must have been in Egypt as well. And now the family returns to Canaan. And in the next verse, we see that Abram has become a rich man. He has silver, gold, and livestock. God's promise that he would bless Abram is coming into fruition. And the famine that drove Abram to Egypt must have been short-lived. Now Abram's livestock are able to thrive off the land, thus demonstrating that God would have taken care of him regardless, and there was no need for him to journey to Egypt in the first place. And we see some acknowledgement of that as Abram returns to the area of Bethel where he had built an altar back in chapter 12, verse 8. And once again, Abram makes a sacrifice and worships Yahweh. It would appear that Abram is back on track with God's purposes for him. But in some ways, we should try to zoom out here and realize that something greater is happening. Abram is learning about his God. He is learning about the concept of repentance. We don't see in this passage Abram gloating and saying, we pulled a fast one over on Pharaoh, didn't we, Lot? Nor is he saying, whew, that was a close one. We're lucky to escape with our lives. No, we're seeing God shape Abram's character through these events in his life. Abram is learning the concept of repentance. Repentance is the first word of the gospel. There can be no good news in someone's life unless they repent. Now, we've talked about repentance before, but it bears repeating. In fact, over and over, most people think that repentance simply means to cease bad behavior. But there's more to repentance than that. Repentance means not only striving to cease whatever moral thing we might be doing, but also changing our hearts and our minds to seek what God desires because we love God and the things that He loves. We also are to conform our thinking to the Lord's. We become Christ-like. Therefore, repentance is not just a one-time act like saying a sinner's prayer, but it is a lifetime of learning and adopting the way that God thinks. Repentance is demonstrated in our perseverance to rely upon Christ and his work and not our own. And so here we might think Abram would say, well, Sarai and I blew it. God won't take me back. I should just go my own way now. No, 
Abram recognizes God's intervention in this, and he once again returns to the Lord, and he worships him. God brings tests and trials into our lives to bring about repentance. This isn't punishment. It is God shaping and conforming us into the image of his Son. It's chipping away at our sin nature so that we might be holy. As I said last week, the Christian's faith is in the promises that God makes to us in Christ Jesus. It's not based upon our individual promise to God, nor even in our faith. Therefore, in our sanctification, we must constantly conform and reform our thinking to the desires of God, always trusting in His gracious promises to us. That is the exercise of our faith. And one can know whether or not they are a Christian based on whether or not they continue to cling to the work of Christ on the cross and what it accomplished. And likewise, Yahweh has promised to be Abram's God. And so far in our story, that is proving to be true regardless of Abraham's folly. Now, with these blessings of God, a conflict arises between Abram and his nephew. Verse 5, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Now, this would seem to be a good problem to have. They have too many possessions and not enough resources to sustain them. Plus, they have the complication of the indigenous people living there as well, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Later in Genesis 21 and also in chapter 26, we'll see conflicts between Abram and his family with the people that live in the land over water rights. This will be a common problem until the conquest when the indigenous people are removed. So between Abram's wealth and Lot's wealth, there would need to be some alternative to how these resources could be shared. So it is Abram, the exalted father, that proposes a solution. Verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. And if you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. So I should point out here, that this is incredibly magnanimous of Abram. Abram is the greater figure by societal standards. He is Lot's elder and the one who looked after Lot when his father Haran died. But here in verse 8, Abram calls him brother. You can see that in the footnotes of your Bible. The Hebrew word kinsman can also be translated as brother. He puts Lot on the same social standing as himself. Also, God promised the land to Abram and his descendants, not to Lot. But now Abram is offering Lot a portion of his land. He could have easily said, well, Lot, just go find your own way and you live on that. And then on top of that, the fact that Lot has anything at all is due to the fact that Abram is with him. This God promised to bless whomever Abram blessed in chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. That anyone associated with Abram and his direct descendants will receive blessings from God due to that relationship. So now Lot has first choice of the land. 
And we see how Lot decided, or how Lot is going to decide where he's going to live here. Verse 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Lot made his choice by sight, by what looked good. He was attracted to the fertile area of the Jordan Valley. And not only was there water and fertile land, but there were also cities people that he could sell to and buy from, people that would provide entertainment and worldly comforts. And according to verse 13, the, the reputation of the citizens of Sodom had already preceded them. Lord willing, we'll say more about this place in detail when we get to chapter 19. But Lot made his choice based upon appearances, what he could see. There was no consultation with Abram, no time of prayer with the Lord about what he should do. He looked up, he saw what he liked, and he chose that. Much like Eve did with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Lot and his people go their own way towards Zoar, and Abram remains and settles in Canaan. So now the two are separated, and God speaks to Abram. Verse 14, the Lord, and this is all in capital letters, so in Hebrew, this is Yahweh, God's covenant name, Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, and for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So now God specifies some of his previous promises to Abram. And it's important to note the timing. This happens after Lot and Abram separate. This promise is for Abram alone. Lot is excluded from it. Lot may receive blessings from his relationship with Abram, but he is not part of the covenant with his uncle. This promise is not for Lot nor his descendants, but for Abram and his. And this is more specific. Abram is to cast his vision in all directions. And God promises to give whatever he sees to this man. Now, I think this statement in verses 14 through 16 are meant to be taken in two ways. One is for the immediate purpose that Moses has written Genesis. Remember, when this book was assembled, Moses has hundreds of thousands of Abram's descendants preparing to engage in the conquest of the very land that Abraham is standing in. So this promise is to the Jews whom Moses is writing that Yahweh will give them the land that is before them. They are an immense people group about to inherit a specific geographic location that will become the nation of Israel. So why do I believe there's a second way of interpreting this verse? Where there are three clues here that there's something more involved than just Moses' immediate purpose. First, no matter where Abram looked, God promised to give that land to Abram's descendants. And as I said before, I think Abram 
is the seed of the church, the bride of Christ. So this promise to give Abram all things belongs to the church. Now I'm going to ask you once again, keep a finger or bookmark here and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. This is found on page 976 of your pew Bible. Now, the converted Jewish theologian, Paul, also believed the people of Abram were the beginnings of the church, the bride of Christ. Now, at the beginning of this letter, we have seen Paul pronounce a blessing upon the Ephesian church made up of both Jew and Gentile Christians. And he said in verse 3 that God had blessed them all, which would include us, with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So in verse 17, Paul prays this for the Ephesian church. First, he prays that they would know they have access to immense treasure here. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the states? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Next, he prays that they would know how we achieve this, how we get this, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And here is the treasure, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul says that Christ has all things and the inheritance of the saints is that Christ shares all things with the church. Every spiritual blessing. Wow. Whatever Abram saw, God was going to give him and his descendants and this was fulfilled in Christ. Now, the second clue from Genesis 13, 15 is that God promises to give this inheritance to Abram's descendants forever. If this includes everywhere that Abram looked, in what sense can Abram, in a future sense, count on this? Especially when we know that Jacob and his sons will have to leave this land due to a famine for 400 years. We also know in 586 BC that God exiled the Jews from this territory for 70 years due to their disobedience. And then again in 70 AD, the Romans will conquer Israel. So how does God keep this promise when he uses the word forever? Great question. I'm so glad you asked. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. This is on page 1041 of your pew Bible. Now, this is a vision that God gives to John when he shows him the future. Now, it doesn't matter which side of the eschatology debate you are on, pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill, or daffodil. Everyone agrees 
This is the future of the church when God fully redeems everything and erases all contamination of sin. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from, uh, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now keep a finger here for a little bit later. But we can see that this is when Abram's descendants, the church, receive all that Abram sees forever. And the difference is it's a new heaven and a new earth without any sin whatsoever. And it will be ours forever. So the word forever is our second clue here. And the third clue is that God promises Abram as many descendants as there is dust in the earth. That's a lot of people. Certainly more than were with Moses at the time that, that he recorded these events in Genesis. And I don't think this is just hyperbole. So turn back to Revelation chapter 7. This is going to be on page 1032. In this chapter, John is given a vision of the angels holding back judgment until all who belong to the Lamb are sealed. Now, our purposes today are not to study the end times, so we're not interested as to when this happens as we are as what is being portrayed here. And in verses 4 through 8, we have the sealed, cubed number of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jews. But look what emerges after this in verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now look at verse nine, a great number or great multitude that no one could number. That sounds like descendants as numerous as dust on the earth. And look where they came from. Not just the Jews, but every nation, tribe, and tongue. When God has redeemed the last person he intends to save, that is when the fullness of these promises to Abraham will occur. So I believe these three clues are foreshadowing the future church that will evolve from Abraham to David to King Jesus. So let's turn back to Genesis chapter 13. Now to make this promise tangible, 
here in verse 17, God orders Abram, arise and walk the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Everywhere that Abram is walking, he can be like those seagulls in finding Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. Now the irony is, is that he's going to worship Yahweh from an altar that he's going to build for him. But this is going to be the place that Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, and Rebekah will all be buried. And it will become a monument altar of the promise that they believed in God. So now as we conclude, there is one massive lesson that we should learn from this story. When I was a child, I was told that the takeaway from Genesis 13 is that we should be polite like Abram and put others ahead of ourselves and give them first choice. And God will take care of us regardless. No, that is not the point of the story. It's a little more nuanced than that. I think the emphasis should be placed more on Lot. And here's what I mean. What will you base your life upon? Will you base your life, your, your prospects, your future upon what you can see? Or will you base those decisions upon faith in the promises of God? Lot went for the world. He went for the pleasures and comfort of life. And that is as long as he had them for just a brief period and not even for his entire life. A little later in this story, we're going to see that Lot and his daughters end up homeless, living in a cave as the city that he chose to live by is eradicated off the face of the earth. Now, in contrast to this, the writer of the book of Hebrews reveals to us that Abram's choice was not based upon what he could see, but what he knew God promised him in the future. And you can see this in your worship guide. It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, if you read through those verses in Hebrews 11, you will not find Lot's name listed in the hall of faith. Lot should have remained with Abram. He should have said, give the Perizzites and the Canaanites my possessions. What Abram has promised is way better than any material thing that I could possess. And that's the choice that belongs to you. Maybe, Christian, like Abram, you need to recalibrate your life. You need to practice some repentance right now. Maybe you are looking to the things of this world to satisfy you rather than looking to the God who created this world. I tend to find that in my counseling sessions with people and also just in my own life, most of my frustrations, most of, of the things that irritate me are things 
in my life that I think are not going the way that I think they should be going. Or I am not getting what I think I deserve in a particular moment. I put all the emphasis on me. And I find this to be true of others that I counsel. That rather than looking at what God may be doing extensively in their life, big picture, we're so focused in on what's irritating, what's troubling us in this moment. So maybe you need to recalibrate. Maybe you need to practice some repentance right now. Maybe you need to spend some time in God's promises, knowing that he is sovereignly in control and he has all power. And if he's doing something right now in your life that feels troublesome, you can have faith that it's going to turn out the way God desires. Because what Yahweh wants, Yahweh gets. And he always wants the best for you, even though it's hard for you to see it in this moment. Maybe, non-believer, you need to pray for spiritual eyes to be opened so that you can see more than what this world offers. I had a conversation uh, with the lady uh, who was organizing things at the funeral home for my nephew a couple of weeks ago. And uh, my my brother and his wife, they were severely mourning over the body of my nephew um, when we were able to visit the body. And uh, the lady spoke to me and she said, oh, don't they know that he's not here right now? And I thought, oh, a fellow believer. And so I talked to her, I said, so uh, where do you go to church? And she said, oh, I don't, but I'm a person of faith. I said, so what is your faith in? And she said, well, my faith is just in faith. I, I, I believe that there is some supreme deity that is organizing and, and working things out somehow, some way. And I said, oh, you're missing the big picture. You think you have the big picture, but you're really missing the big picture. Your faith cannot be just in your faith. Your faith must be in Jesus Christ and what he did on your behalf at the cross. You must believe in that alone. Just faith that things are going to work out is not really faith at all. Because when we see what is described in Hebrews chapter 11, all of those people who preceded Christ coming to the earth were having their faith in what was promised to them when Christ came to the earth. And that is what your faith must be in today. So I would beg you, if you're going, wow, this is some pretty heavy stuff. It is. I would encourage you, don't leave today. Come to our picnic, all right? It's going to be a great fun to be able to do that. But find somebody sitting at your table, all right, a fellow Christian is here, a member here at Providence, right? And talk to them and ask them, tell me about this faith in Jesus. I want to hear from you. Tell me about it. I got full confidence that every believer in this room can share with you what faith in Christ is like and what it's done in their life to transform them. 
Because when you are able to focus your eyes on Christ, it allows you to lift your eyes from this earth and all the sin, all the frustration, all the irritating things that are happening right now so that you can trust in him and know that he is in control. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to open our eyes, every single person in this room, to see the deeper spiritual things that need to be involved, that we need to turn our gaze and our eyes to Christ. And if we have Christ, that should be enough to satisfy us. And if we are not satisfied, then it means we are seeking satisfaction in something else other than Christ. So help us, Lord, to turn to him. Help us to realize, Lord, no matter what trial, no matter what tribulation we might be going through right now, that what we need is more Christ, not something else. Help us to see that he must be our sure and steady anchor in this world. We pray this in his finished work alone. Amen. Brother Andrew.